the girls earlier that um, you are all witnessing a really big moment for me. I've always wanted to wear a microphone like this. <laughs> um, it's like pop star status. So I'm just really thankful that you are all here to experience that moment with me. Um, yeah, so last week, Laura, she set the stage for us for the book of Esther. We went all the way back to the Exodus, and she walked us through um, the significant moments that have led us from there now to the front door of the book of Esther. And so tonight we get to open our Bibles to the book of Esther, and we're going to cover the first four chapters. It's a lot of ground to cover tonight, so I'm just going to warn you, hang on tight. Um, but before we dive into the text, I wanted an I wanted to just take a moment and talk about how we might approach this book. Um, I have three kids, and my oldest, she finished up first grade this year, and at the end of the school year, she brought home her writing journal that she had been using throughout the year, and I was just flipping through it, and um, I came across this page. See if I can find it there. If you can't read it, it says, Callan said, you lose, I win to my sister. He bragged. So bragged was the vocabulary word, and this is what she chose um, for her story. And you can see in the picture there, Callan, the brother, is pointing an angry finger at little sister Penny, who is obviously distraught. You can see the tear on her face. Um, but the author isn't giving us a lot of detail here. We don't see, we don't see the hearts or the motives of the people involved. Um, now, I know these little people very well, so I'm pretty sure I know what's going on. But an outside perspective, you might make some wrong assumptions that would lead you to some wrong conclusions. You might approach this text with your past personal experience as a younger sibling, um, the culture that you were raised in, or even your knowledge in the area of child psychology, and you might make some judgments about the heart of that boy. But you could be wrong. I mean, maybe he's just a very non-emotional, hyper-logical child, and he's just stating that he clearly sees the defect, and he has no ill intent at all towards his sister. Or maybe he knew that it would make her cry, and so he said it because he wanted her to make her cry. But you can't know that based on what the author gives us. When we look at the book of Esther, the author gives us pictures. He gives us events and dialogue, but rarely does he reveal the hearts and the motives of the characters. And he does that with intention. But if you're like me, when you study Esther, you're going to want to understand these characters. And you're going to want to know, in this book, whose example am I supposed to be following? But the author doesn't reveal their hearts. And, and that's with intention, with a purpose in mind. So often we approach the Bible like it's an intellectual game. Who am I? What am I supposed to think? But the Bible is a book about God, about who he is, and about what he has done. So I want to encourage you that as you study Esther, don't look so much for the character qualities that you want or don't want to emulate. Instead, let's look for the fingerprints of God. Let's look for the way that he puts himself on display, even though his name is not in our hand in this book, even though he seems 
Silence. Okay? Let's do it. Esther chapter 1. This book opens with a grand display of the power and wealth of Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. He's gathered together all of the nobles and the princes and the army officers to the citadel in Susa, and he's throwing this grand banquet. He's hoping to, to gain their support for an impending war campaign into Greece. So this isn't just a banquet. It was a war capital. In chapter 1, verse 4, it says that he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. So he's showing off the seemingly endless riches of the kingdom, and in doing so, he's making a dire promise. Support me, and the fist will be yours. Get a piece of this pie. When we get to verse 5, at the end of the 180 days, the king now turns his attention to the citizens of Susa. He wants um, to endear these people to himself. He doesn't just want their, their fear, which he does want, but he wants their admiration and their support. So he opens up the doors and he invites them into the garden of the king's palace, where the common people of Susa can come in for a feast, a week-long feast, and they can bask in the godlike glory of the Persian Empire. Try to picture this. A grand hall lined with 36 marble columns standing 70 feet tall. Everywhere you looked, there would have been ornate sculptures and gold embellishments, fine linen draped everywhere. The floor was a beautiful mosaic of, of marble and other precious stones. And if you got tired and needed to sit down, you could just sit on one of the couches that was completely made out of gold. Can you even imagine that kind of wealth? So the commoners stood surrounded by all of the riches and the opulent wealth of King of Persia. And they listened to the court musicians. They watched the entertainers sing and dance. They ate food brought in on cart after cart, and they drank wine served in gold goblets. Um, in verse 8, it says that drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. So normally, if you were dining with the king, you had to eat whatever he served you, however much he served you, and you couldn't ask for anything more. So this edict, it simply meant that people could eat and drink as they pleased. He wanted these people to be happy and carefree. In verse 9, we see that Queen Vashti, she's also in the palace. She's hosting a separate feast for all of the women. So that tells us that the feast that the king is throwing, it's for the men, a bunch of guys. There were some women there, but they would have been the concubines and the slaves who would have been brought in and put to work. Like I said, the king wanted these guys happy, and he was throwing more expense. When we arrive at day seven of the feast, after a week of endless wine, endless entertainment, and plenty of lewd behavior, you can imagine that this is a pretty terrifying scene. And this is where things really start to get sad. Sitting on his throne, presiding over all of these festivities, is the all-powerful king. And verse 10 says that his heart was merry with wine. And it is in that state that he calls his eunuchs and commands that they bring Queen Vashti before him, knowing he will not like this 
spotted light to the key and I would go to the key and I would ask him to leave it down into my territory. This was a royal drunken scene. He's yelling at his men to bring him his queen, stirring up this mob in the process. Vashti was a living trophy of all of his power and glory, and he intended to make her the centerpiece of this feast. But Vashti says no. She hears the irrational command of the king and the roar of the mob, and she says no. No to demeaning herself and her maids. No to being associated with the concubines. No to the humiliation that she would undoubtedly face if she were to set foot in the palace. And in saying no, she shows us that she's a person of strong character because she risked her life here. She could have been killed for deceiving her and not her king. And now the king is very angry. He's angry and humiliated. This isn't just a personal conflict between a husband and a wife. This has the potential to be a major political setback. I mean, here he is. He's putting this display of, you know, his power and authority so that all these people will follow his command and go into battle, but he can't even get his own wife to obey him. This does not look good for our king. So he calls in his wise men to see what is to be done. And he asks his advisors in verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of the king? One of these men, Manusia, probably pronounced that differently. Um, and he's obviously struggling with some anxiety about his actions because he speaks up. He's like, oh, king, Vashti has wronged not only me, but every single man in all of Persia. I mean, when wives hear about what she has done, they're going to get it in their hearts that they can refuse to help him too. There's going to be an uprising of disobedient women if you don't do something about this. So here's what he suggests. Issue a royal decree. Banish Vashti. Strip her of her title and give it to someone more worthy than her. Strike fear into the hearts of all women so that all wives will honor their husbands. And in the heat of his anger and emotion, Ahasuerus agrees. He sends away his queen and he sends letters to all of the king's provinces decreeing that every man should be the master of his own house. Problem solved. And that's the end of chapter one. And you might be thinking, why in the world is there a chapter one? I mean, we haven't even met Esther or Mordecai. You might think we could just cut out this whole section and still understand the purpose of this book and understand what is happening to the Jews in this moment of their history. But the author is setting the stage for what is to come next. Chapter one reveals the danger of the Persian court. We see a king easily angered, easily manipulated, and totally unpredictable. Last week, Laura shared that this king is said to have executed his engineers when a natural disaster took out the boat they were working on. And then he sent men into the water with hot irons and whips to punish the water for its insolence. I mean, this guy is crazy. He's crazy with seemingly unlimited power. That's 
And while the author gives us this picture of the dangers of the Persian Empire, where, where illogical and irrational decisions are made by men of great power who think that they have control and they have the final word, we see, ultimately, worldly power is unable to thwart any of God's plans. We see how the king's drunken commands and the king's bold refusal, it isn't just some unrelated story where the fallout is confined just to those people in the bars. It is all connected, and it's all under the control of a sovereign hand, and it's all geared toward toward God's great plan of deliverance. This king might think that if all of his wealth and authority, that the power belongs to him. But Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He handles whatever he desires. Now there's something else that we see in chapter 1, and that is the difference between Ahasuerus as king and God as king. Ahasuerus is selfish, cruel, abrasive, unpredictable, and First of all, 
Mordecai is not a Jewish name. It's actually a name that honors the Persian god Marduk. Now, it was common for people in exile to be given new names. We see that in the book of Daniel. But the fact that the author chooses to use the Persian name is very significant. And then it says that Mordecai lives at the citadel in Susa. Not on the outskirts of Susa, where you might find some small Jewish communities faithfully practicing the laws of the Torah, but at the citadel, at the center of power and politics, he probably had a job working for the king. Later in the story, we see that Mordecai has to tell the other king's servants that he's a Jew. So this guy's obviously not living out his Jewishness in a way that would have set him apart. Oh, he knows enough about his heritage, as we see later. He's just choosing to live separate from that. He's not dressing like a Jew, eating like a Jew, practicing the Sabbath like a Jew. Mordecai was a compromised man, living with a Persian identity in service to a pagan king. Verse 5 also gives us a list of Mordecai's ancestors. It says that he is from the tribe of Benjamin, a son of Kish. So this piece of information tells us that Mordecai is from the same family line as Israel's first king, King Saul. This family line grounds this story in Jewish history. So Mordecai had adopted his uncle's daughter, and he's raising her as his own. From verse 7, we know that she's beautiful, a foreign race. She's introduced as Hadassah, that is Esther. She's the only character in this book to be introduced with two names. Hadassah is a Jewish name, probably given to her by her parents. And Esther is a Persian name meaning star, probably given to her by Mordecai. So the decree goes out, and the gathering of the beautiful virgins begins. Now, I grew up in the church. I remember, as a child, picturing this a lot like a beauty contest. All the girls were gathered, they reached the palace, they were made up to look all pretty, and then they walk the catwalk in front of the king, and he chooses his favorite to be the queen, and then the rest all go home to their families. That's not what's going on here. I was very sad to find that out. Yes, the winner of the contest would be crowned queen of Persia, but the rest of the women they would be sentenced to living in luxurious desolation in the harem for the rest of their lives. The text is very clear after their year of beauty treatments. Verse 14, in the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem. Remember, this was a contest to see who could please the king the most. They had one night with the king, and I can tell you that they didn't spend it getting to know him like a cup of coffee. Well, not if they hoped to win, that is. And, and the laws of the land were clear. Once you had spent the night with the king, you could spend the night with no other man ever. They would never marry. They would never have normal families of their own. This was a life sentence. Now, before you stand up and start shouting, how dare he? How dare he treat these women like objects, like possessions? Or some of you are about to do that, aren't you? Let me remind you that to the king of Persia, that's exactly what they were. They were his. 
he owned them, and it, it wasn't just the women. Historians report that every year, 500 young boys were gathered and castrated to serve as eunuchs in the king's court. This is just another example of the terrifying power of the pagan empire. Now you can imagine the mixed reactions of the sickly going out. Some would have been mortified, fearful. They would have fought against being taken to the palace. Others would have wept at the chance to be the king and to have that wealth and that status. Some families would have brought their daughters forward, seeing this as an opportunity to be provided for, food, clothing, shelter, and a time when many were poor before the great king. It might have seemed a welcome opportunity. And then you have Mordecai. Mordecai, who has intentionally settled himself in the center of power and influence. He's raising Esther as his own daughter. He knows she's beautiful. He's seen the way she turns heads in the marketplace. And long before this decree goes out, Mordecai has been grooming Esther. I mean, if he can teach her how to be culturally savvy, to be sophisticated, to win the favor of powerful men, he could probably arrange a marriage with a high-ranking official. Can't be good life for Esther, right? Wouldn't hurt her political career either, would it? So the decree goes out, and Mordecai, he's like, she's my daughter. Can you imagine? He's thinking, this is it. I never could have dreamt of such an opportunity, but here it is. Mordecai brings Esther forward, and she's taken into the king's palace. Right away, Esther pleases Haggai, the eunuch put in charge of this contest. She's beautiful. She's sophisticated. She's been groomed for this. It's his job to find the one, and who do you think he could get? So he takes her under his wing. He gives her extra maids, the best of the food, the best of the cosmetics. Esther gets the best of everything, and she's smart. She listens to the advice of Haggai. She learns how she can best please the king. She's a force to be reckoned with. Mordecai, he comes each day to check on Esther. He still has a voice in her life. He's giving her counsel throughout the course of this contest. One piece of advice he gives her is, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. Keep it a secret. Why would he do that? Well, the Jews were probably not seen as a prominent or even a favorable people group. They might have been poor, living on the outskirts of society, and so to be associated with them would have been of no benefit to Esther in this contest. So he says, don't tell anybody. Keep it hidden. After her year of preparation, it's finally Esther's turn to go before the king. It says that the king loved Esther more than all the others. It says she found favor and kindness with him more than all of the virgins. Now let's just think logically about this before we just get to this stupid point. We don't know what number Esther was in this contest. She could have been knight 258. 258 knights that the king has potentially already had. So it's logical to assume that there had to be something beyond the physical intimacy that set her apart from the rest, right? Jewish commentaries describe Esther as a work of art in which every beholder can see exactly what they are. So it had to be this skill, beyond the physical intimacy, that won the heart of the king. 
so that other people would be motivated to be loyal. But Mordecai, he overlooked. Nothing happened. This could have been seen as a great injustice. Sometimes, as believers, we do the hard thing. We do the right thing, and the reward doesn't seem to come. Does that mean that God doesn't notice? Does it mean that he doesn't care? Or could it be that God has a greater purpose that he is working out in us and in the greater story that we are participating in? When you do what is right and you don't receive the recognition that you think you deserve, you just blame yourself. You're unsatisfied. Is your peace tied to whether or not your good deeds are noticed and celebrated by others? Or is your peace securely tied up with loving family? What is motivating us to do what is right? We live in a performative culture where everyone around us seems to be about promoting themselves. It's like we're building up these images of ourselves to how we want people to perceive us. And then we place our security, our satisfaction in the response that we get and the number of likes that we get. But is that God's heart? Matthew 6, 1, Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Why would we have no reward? Because in doing what is good, what is right, for the approval of men, we are receiving the reward that we truly desire. But God wants our hearts. He wants us to do what is right because we understand the gifts of his love for us, because we want to bring him glory, and we trust him with the outcome. Mordecai had no way of knowing how this moment would eventually play a role in God's plan of deliverance. We don't know the end of our own stories. We don't know how God is working things together for his good purposes in us and in the around us. But I can tell you this with great certainty, we can trust him with the outcome. Can we trust him here? Now, so when we get to chapter 3, the original readers would have been expecting Mordecai to be elevated in some way because of his you know, royal act. But instead, another man rises to a position of power in the king's court. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Haman, the Agagite. Does that sound familiar? Last week, Laura told us all about King Agag and the age-old conflict between the Amalekites and the Jews. The animosity between these people groups goes all the way back to the Exodus. This new nation of Israel, they were just coming out of Egypt, they were headed towards the promised land, and the Amalekites are the first people to attack them. And they attacked them from behind. They were taking out their youth as squabblers. They were a people with no moral boundaries. They were set on destruction, and Moses told Israel, do not forget what they have done. He says, when, when you enter the promised land, when God settles you in the land and gives you rest from all of your enemies, blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And many years later, King Saul, 
Israel's first king was commanded to wipe out the Amalekites, but he spared their king, King Agag, from the best of their possessions. In an act of obedience, the prophet Samuel kills King Agag, hacks him to pieces. But because of Saul's partial obedience, the line of Agag continued on. And now all these years later, we see Haman the Agagite rise to power, predisposed to hatred towards God's people. Because of Haman's high position in the court, the king commands that all should bow down. All should pay homage to Haman. But not at the cost. This was not pride. This was not jealousy. This was a line in the sand. This was Mordecai the Jew from the family line of King Saul coming face to face with Haman from the family line of King Agag. Up until this point, we've seen Mordecai the Jew living like a Persian climbing the ladder of power and influence in the king's court, compromising his identity as one of God's people in the process. But here it is. It's his line in the sand. I compromise again and again, he says. But I can go no further. I am a Jew. I cannot bow. This was a moment of awakening for Mordecai. The moment that his eyes were opened to the greater story of God and his people, and Mordecai's part in it. The, the moment he realized that his life was about a lot more than just him. Now, this brings up a challenging thought. Was the rise of Haman, the Agagite, to power necessary so that Mordecai would have this moment of awakening? Is it possible? Could it be that God is stirring up what seems to be a bad, bad scenario so that Mordecai would come to a place where he was ready to be used by God in the preservation of his life? Are there difficult circumstances in our lives put there by God so that our eyes will be open to his calling so that we will lay aside the things that we put in the way? Are mountains put in our paths that cause us to look up? that stir us to a deeper faith. Child of God, can we trust that in every difficult circumstance that God is in control, that he sees the whole story, that he is working out his good purposes in you? And let's take our eyes off ourselves for a minute, that he's working out his good purposes for all of mankind. So day after day, Mordecai is in the king's court. He's refusing to bow. The other king's officials, they're asking him repeatedly, why won't you bow? Why are you disobeying the command of the king? Don't you know what you're risking here? And it's at this point that Mordecai reveals to these guys that he is a Jew. And that's his reason. They're not bowing. So these guys, they go to Haman, and they tell him what's going on because they want to know. Is religion a legitimate excuse for refusing to obey the command of the king and not bowing to you, God? Verse 5 says that when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, that Haman was filled with rage. Haman had thousands of people bowing down to him. They don't just have him bowing to him anymore. All that mattered was their one who did it. Haman is 
filled with rage. And his wrath is aimed not just at Mordecai, but at the entire Jewish race. He will make him Mordecai as a Jew. And so the ancient hatred of the Agagites is still active. He must destroy them all. Just to give you a sense of the timeline here, at this point in our story, we are, um, Esther has just been king for about four years now. In verse 7, we are in the first month, the month of Nisan, in in French, sounds like a car. And now that Haman has determined to destroy the Jews, he casts lots to determine exactly which days he's going to annihilate them. The text uses the word her, which is an Assyrian term for the lot. Casting lots was like rolling the dice, but instead of gambling, it was used as a form of divination. And so the the lot lands in the 12th month. So from the first month to the 12th month, there are about 11 months between when Haman rolls the dice and when this date is set for the destruction of the Jews. Now that the date is set, Haman approaches the king. In verse 8, he says, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of, of, of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Okay, let's break this down. Haman says there is this people group in the kingdom whose laws are different from other people's. True. But then Haman says that these people are not obeying the commands of the king. Not true. The Jews would have lived by a distinct set of laws. It would have impacted the way they dressed, their diet, the way they conducted business, among other things. But none of those laws would have been in opposition to the king's laws. In Jeremiah chapter 29, it's a letter written to the Jews who were living in exile. And the Jews are instructed to seek the welfare of the city where they have been placed, to seek the peace of the city where they are in exile. These people were not living in rebellion to King Ahasuerus. There was, of course, one Jew who was disobeying one command of the king. But, of course, Haman, he doesn't care about this. Haman is appealing to the king's pride, his power, and his pocketbook. Say, I disobey my laws. It really isn't in your best interest for them to be in the kingdom. It would be better for you, O king, if we destroyed them. And then I will pay a large sum of money into the king's Haman is smart. He knows this king very well. Did you notice that Haman never mentions the name of the people group? And the king never asks? Haman knows that the king's greatest interest is his own best interest. He doesn't ask who these people are because he doesn't care. He doesn't care about human life. All he cares about is maintaining his own power, his own influence, his own self-image. And Haman knows that the royal treasuries severely depleted after that disastrous war into Greece. Haman plans on refilling these treasuries 
by plundering the possessions of the Jews. And the king takes the bait. He hands his signet ring to Haman, giving him the authority of the throne. And he says, the silver is yours and the people to do with as you please. He's not saying he won't take the money. He's taking the money. This is a false act of generosity, and it's right in line with his character. He wants to appear the all-generous king, but he's taking the money and none of the responsibility. The king's scribes are summoned. The decree is written in the king's name just as Haman commands. But on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, that all people in all the provinces were to destroy, kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, and to seize their possessions as plunder. This edict, which, which was issued as law, it was sent out immediately. Remember, there were 11 months between when Haman cast lots and when this date was set. The people had ample time to prepare for this day of killing. In the decree, you'll notice that Haman doesn't give a reason for why the people have been killed. The people don't need to be convinced. Haman is assuming that there are already a lot of people who hate the Jews. God's people have always been targets. We see that even today. They've always been a target. And now the king of Persia has given people free reign to attack and kill them. Can you imagine the scene as the royal decree goes out? As it gets posted up in the marketplace, can you hear the wailing, the sobbing, the, the shouting, the angry threats as animosity is stirred up among neighbors? And where do we find the king and Haman? Look at verse 15. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to eat and drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. All around them, chaos is breaking out, and we find these two guys just sitting down to a meal. Business as usual. The king, he's managed to stay personally detached from all of this. He's given all of his responsibility to someone else. So this is just some other day for him. Haman, he sits back, drinking in his victory, his great rise to power. All that's left to happen now is for the day to come, for the killing to happen, and this one has already won. At the beginning of chapter 4, Mordecai learns about the edict for the state of Jews. It says that he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. In these days when someone would tear their clothes, it was as if their heart was swelling with tearing and sorrow to the point that it would burst tearing the clothes. Mordecai tears his clothes, and then he goes home and he puts on sackcloth. Sackcloth was a garment made out of goat hair. It's normally used to make grain jackets. It's like burlap. Really icky stuff. Sackcloth, it would irritate the skin. It would deny the mourner any sort of comfort, numbing, or forbidding. It was a constant reminder of their grief. And then the ashes that would have been dumped on this couple were identifying Mordecai with Mordecai, he's all in now. And he's putting on this public display of grief as far as the king's gate because he can't go any further. 
he couldn't enter the king's gate because mourners were not allowed inside. So he gets his closest and he's crying. And so word reaches Esther that Mordecai's sitting on Titus' hand there. In verse 4, we see that Esther is very upset to hear about Mordecai's distress. His distress distresses her. See, it also embarrasses her. So she sends out a change of clothes, hoping that he will cover up quietly. I mean, isn't this the same guy who told her to hide her Jewish identity? Who taught her how to win the favor of powerful men? What does he think he's doing? He's drawing all this unwanted attention to himself. And it's only when Mordecai sends the clothes back that Esther sends a messenger to find out what's actually going on here. Mordecai sends back details of everything that's happened, including the exact sum of money that Haman has promised to pay for the destruction of the Jews. And he sends a copy of the edict, and he commands Esther to go before the king and plead for her people. Esther says she can't do it. The king hasn't called her into his presence for over a month now. Esther knows that Mordecai knows what she wants. He couldn't just go before the king. The law didn't permit anybody but the king's closest advisors to go before the king without being summoned. To go before the king without being summoned was a death sentence, unless the king extended his golden scepter to you in the last Congress. See? Ahasuerus is mixed up in this. He kind of mixed it. We don't know exactly why Esther hasn't been summoned when she hasn't seen the king for these 30 days, but it's obvious she doesn't think that the golden scepter would be extended to her. I mean, surely Mordecai isn't asking her to just like him. So she waits for his reply. The messenger returns and relays these words in verse 13. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you may not attain royalty in such a time as this. Mordecai knows what kind of options Esther has. And he knows the option that even a week ago, he would have suggested she choose. I mean, here she is, the queen of Persia, living safely inside the walls of the palace. She could hide. She could remain silent. No one but Mordecai knew she was a Jew. She has this ability to win the favor of everybody she meets. Remember, Esther is a force to be reckoned with. Withdrawal wouldn't be an option. But Mordecai asks, do you really think you'll escape this? He says, if you choose to remain silent, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai is trusting in God's promises to his people. They will be delivered. This is not a question of who will deliver them, Esther or God. Mordecai is saying, if you don't, Esther, God will use someone else. God will save his people. The question is, do you want to be a part of that? And then we get to the statement where Mordecai seems to contradict himself. Mordecai says, if you remain silent, relief will come for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. So, Esther, if you remain silent, God will save us. 
if you run through you. What's he getting at here? Remember how Esther was the only character in this book to be introduced with two names, Hadassah and Esther. This is the moment where these two identities collide and where Esther must make a choice. Who will she choose to be? If she chooses to hide behind her identity as Esther, Queen of Persia, then Hadassah will last in history. Her family heritage of Jewish faith would have ended with her father's death. To withdraw now in the Jews' moment of crisis, Esther would have to leave. And then Mordecai says this, And who knows whether you have not attained royalty from such a time as this. See, Mordecai had already had his moment of awakening. He was starting to see God's fingerprints on everything that had led to this point. The king's drunk commands for his king, her bold refusal, the disastrous war campaign that left the king feeling depressed, which led to this crazy contest to choose a new king, and then Esther rising above all of them and being crowned the queen of Persia. He sees it. How each and every moment, it's leading, it's pushing toward toward this moment for God to deliver the Jews. He sees it. But oh, Esther, the crisis was now demanding that Esther make a choice. Who would she choose to identify with? God's people or this Persian culture? The temptation to claim her Persian identity was real. I mean, who would blame her? And who would question her? She'd been raised to be Persian. She looked Persian. She was married to the Persian king. But to choose that path would be to choose a path to death. Yeah, she might live in the king's palace with all of his secrets and luxuries, but would she really be living? To choose to deny her place with God's chosen people now would be choosing to live the rest of her life numb to her true identity. To choose the path of least resistance, living for herself alone, she'd be famous, wandering, always trying to find something to make her feel whole, but always not feeling guilty. But to choose the path that Mordecai is suggesting, well, that's a path to death too. The path of dying to herself. Instead of the path of least resistance, this is the path of risk. She would be others-oriented and God-dependent. She was facing the possibility of physical death. Death. But to choose this path, to choose faith, self-sacrifice, she'd be choosing the only path that would lead to satisfaction and real life. The question that Esther had to answer was this. What kind of death do I want to live? And that question is for us, too. And you might be thinking, like, Kelly, come on. You're never going to have this big Esther moment. And you're right. I mean, you're probably never going to have to choose between hiding your Jewish identity and avoiding the four crazy kings or take hostage to your heroes. But as believers, we face a continuous sequence of perspective time resist moments. Every day, we are faced with moments where we must choose right now, who am I going to identify with? Am I going to identify with the world that I live in? Choosing the path of least resistance where I'm all about protecting and promoting myself? 
Or will I choose to stand firm in my true identity as God's child, choosing the path of vulnerability, the path of sacrificing of myself for the sake of others? What kind of death do you want to live? When my kids are fighting, when I'm just trying to get that one little thing done, and you're like, mom, 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 mom. And my comfort is at stake. Or when somebody says something to me and I'm hurt. Or I feel like I've been left out and I just want to have a band-aid. I don't want to come and fight. Fill in the blank with any moment where the path of least resistance is touching to me. My feelings, my time, my comfort, my self-image. What do you choose? To choose me is to choose death. It's choosing numbness to my true identity as God's child, looking for satisfaction in other things that will never satisfy me. You know what? I'm not satisfied when I snap at my kids. I'm not. And I'm not satisfied soaking in bitterness because that's not the life that God desires to give me. Jesus came so that we could have life and have it to the fullest. And I only get to experience quality of life when I die to myself, when I cease to live. Esther chooses faith. She says, if I perish, I perish. And this wasn't said cynically, like, oh, I guess whatever's going to happen is going to happen. No, it was an active choice to put herself at risk for the sake of her people. She's saying, I would rather die as one of God's people than live apart from him. Esther tells Mordecai to go, assemble all the Jews in Susa, and to fast for her. Can that be a dream for three days, night or day? She and her maids will do the same, and after the three days, at the risk of her own life, she will go before the king. And Mordecai goes. He goes away, and he does everything that Esther had commanded him. Esther's choice to risk her life for her people meant that she would have to reveal that she was a Jew. Which meant that she would have to own up to the fact that up until that moment, she had never been living like one. That must have been really humbling. That must have brought her to a place of deep sorrow and brokenness. Esther had to be empty. I mean, think about the way that she prepared to go see the king the first time. The first time, she is this picture of strength. She spent a year undergoing beauty treatments. She's been trained on how to please, how to use her wit, her charm to get her head. This time, this time to prepare to go see the king, she's going to go without food and water for three days. Do you have any idea what happens to the human body when it goes without water? In just one or two days without fluids, you have trouble swallowing. You suffer, suffer from muscle spasms and nausea. Exhaustion and delirium set in. Blood stops flowing to your skin, giving it a bluish tint. Esther would have been a picture of weakness. Pale eyes, pale skin, hunched over in pain and weariness. This time around, she isn't dependent on herself. She's not dependent on her strength. Esther knows if she's going to receive mercy from the king, she has to empty herself. She has to embrace weakness, falling on the mercy of the only one who could really give it to her. And it is exactly that, the, the emptying of self, that sets us apart. 
as the people of God, we empty ourselves so that we can receive with his strength and with his purposes. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says that we have this treasure, speaking of the gospel, in earthen vessels, speaking of our frail human bodies. So we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Esther chose the path of weakness, and we are called to choose the same path, to empty ourselves, to fall on the mercy of Jesus, to embrace weakness so that God's strength can be manifested in us. And then we humbly say, I reject Jesus. This is too hard for me. If nothing is too hard for you, empty me of me, fill me with your strength and use me how you will. You know who gets the glory? God does. And we get to participate in what he's doing. Just be open. Are you starting to see God's fingerprints? Can you see his plan of deliverance starting to unfold here? But we still haven't heard his name. I mean, even when Esther calls for a fast, we still don't hear his name. God seems silent, even absent. Why? It's like the author wants us to feel the weight of that silence. Have you ever felt that weight in your own life? Have you ever felt like I just can't muster it? I had a, there was a season in my life where I, I felt that so deeply. I just felt like God was silent because I was praying and praying and nothing progressed. Like God was answering everyone around me and just nothing. I felt hopeless forgotten, lost. I was angry and anxious and bitter. And you know what? That's exactly where God met me. In the silence, in the despair, in my sorrow. Sometimes, ladies, that's where God puts his glory on display in the grandest ways. In the silence, when, when our senses are heightened and we're holding our breath, we're just waiting. It's there that we get to experience the manifestations of his grace in a way we wouldn't if we had been distracted by the noise of life. Looking back, man, I can see God's fingerprints all over that season of my life. He was working out his purposes in me. His plan, his story was unfolding in a way I couldn't see it. The book of Esther gives us hope. Hope that in whatever bleak circumstance you might face, whether it is the result of your own choices or whether it is totally out of your control, that something is meant for your good. God sees, God is working in the silence, orchestrating all things so that his good purposes will come about. The story of God can only be trust. And we're going to transition now to our put some questions up on the screen. 
just to say, take a few minutes and just think through um, if there was anything from God's word that was God asking you to respond. What is God asking you to do as a result of, of these words now? Um, so I'm going to pray. And then while I'm praying, I'm going to have Kendra and the team come up and they'll just play some music for us while we have a few minutes of reflection. And then when you hear them start singing, that's your cue to join in on those upcoming words. So let's pray. Awesome Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word and we, we bow our lives before you, Lord, as the only authority. shape us, to, to do the work in us that you desire to do. Lord, thank you for the book of Esther. Thank you for the way that you put yourself on display and can see your sovereignty so clearly, your faithfulness, to keep your promises. Thank you for this book.